Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics on CPAC, the campaign edition. It is day three of the election campaign. Canadians will cast their ballots on September 20th. And today, the campaign was all about the polarizing battle over mandatory vaccinations, dueling daycare promises, and Canada's response to the crisis in Afghanistan. Justin Trudeau says this country will not recognize the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan. And he also warned that public servants who refuse to get vaccinated will face consequences. Coming up, we'll hear from Canada's Minister of Immigration, Marco Mendicino, on the situation in Afghanistan and Canada's uh, response to the crisis. And we'll hear from a health expert on what effect the politicizing of vaccinations could have on the fight against COVID-19. But first, the day on the campaign trail. The Liberal leader campaigned in Ontario today. In ridings around Toronto, the Liberals hope to pick off from Conservatives. Justin Trudeau stepped up his attacks on the Conservative promise to cancel the Liberals' national daycare plan in favour of tax credits for families. They're promising backwards Stephen Harper-era policies that won't create a single childcare spot in Ontario or in any other province or improve the quality of childcare anywhere across the country. Parents can't afford to move backwards. Trudeau also faced more questions about his plan to invoke mandatory vaccines for federal workers and federally regulated workplaces and for airline and rail passengers. At a rally in Aurora today, he was confronted by anti-vaccination protesters. There was some pushing and shoving and one protester was briefly knocked to the ground. Trudeau was asked about the dangers of politicizing COVID vaccinations. He says public servants were wrong when they suggested in internal communications that alternatives to mandatory vaccines would be sought for public servants who refused to get vaccinated. Today he promised consequences, not alternatives, and he also doubled down in those attacks on the Conservatives. If anyone who doesn't have a legitimate medical reason for not getting fully vaccinated chooses to not get vaccinated, there will be consequences. Instead, you get the Conservatives refusing to say whether or not all their candidates, even, are vaccinated. That's ridiculous. We see the Conservatives saying that they will roll back our, uh, our decision to make sure that all public servants get vaccinated, all federal public servants get vaccinated, and indeed that anyone boarding a train or a plane will be fully vaccinated. That's our position, and the other parties really should take that position as well because that's what is going to keep Canadians safe. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole also campaigned today in the Toronto area looking to build or shore up support in key Ontario ridings. O'Toole is promising a Conservative government would give Canadians a month-long holiday from the GST in December for purchases made at retail stores. Our GST holiday will allow a few more of these things to go to the kids at holiday time. It will help bricks and mortar retail stores, not some online purchases. So we're being very strategic. Our Dine and Discover program will help restaurants, will help the hard hit tourism sector. It's time to get all Canadians back to work, get our country back on its feet. 
That's what Canada's recovery plan is all about. Aaron O'Toole opposes mandatory vaccines in favor of rapid testing of those who refuse to be vaccinated. He accused Justin Trudeau of misleading Canadians on mandatory vaccines. Our plan is balanced, it's reasonable, and while the, before they pulled it off the internet, it seemed like it was actually what the civil service was recommending to the prime minister. So we're in a fourth wave election, courtesy of Justin Trudeau. Now Mr. Trudeau's misleading people and dividing people on health issues. Canadians deserve better than that. The NDP leader campaigned in British Columbia today, where there are a number of key three-way races that could well determine the outcome of the election. Jagmeet Singh stopped at a plant making protective masks where he promised an NDP government would invest in Canadian small businesses instead of multinational corporations. What we need to do is have a really aggressive strategy around supporting these companies to expand domestically, making sure that companies that produce material that is necessary like PPE, that they're able to expand within Canada and also supporting them to expand outside of Canada. And the NDP leader also weighed in on the divisive tone of the political debate over mandatory vaccines for federal workers, which the NDP supports. In fact, the NDP leader favors disciplinary action for anyone refusing a vaccine in those federal workplaces. I hope we can really come together around the fact that there are public health experts that provide science-based, evidence-based reasons for us to do certain things that will keep us safe. And I want us to really believe in that instead of getting caught up in what is popular, what opinion is, is going to get people more votes. I really just want to do what's best for people, what's based on the evidence. And I believe in my heart that Canadians want to do that as well. We just have to provide them with the tools to make the best decisions. The Bloc Québécois leader, Yves-François Blanchet, today called again for an increase in pension supports for seniors hard hit during the pandemic. And that's the kind of day it's been, day three of the federal campaign. Well, let's turn to the crisis now in Afghanistan. It is playing a central role in Canada's federal election campaign. The government continues to face serious scrutiny over its efforts to bring 20,000 Afghans to Canada as the Taliban takes control of that country. Another plane from Afghanistan landed in Toronto this evening. Today, the prime minister insisted Canada will not recognize the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan. Canada has no plans to recognize the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan. Uh, when they were in government 20 years ago, Canada did not recognize them as a government. Uh, they have taken over and replaced a duly elected democratic government by force. And as you point out, they are a recognized terrorist organization under Canadian law. Canadians need to know, especially our military families who are are really in a bad place because of what they see happening with those shocking images. Uh, as Prime Minister, I will always stand up for them. I will always stand up for our values. And people who are at risk because they helped Canada, I will not abandon them like Justin Trudeau did. And as a veteran, I didn't serve in Afghanistan, but I know many that did. I want you to know we will do better, we will fight uh, for getting our interpreters back, and we will work with our allies to make sure that we can give humanitarian aid in a way that's safe and helps people, not the Taliban. My position is uh, it's a terrorist group. It's not a legitimate government. This is a group that is instilling fear and putting people's lives at risk, and it is not a group that we should be working with. 
Okay, Marco Mendicino is Canada's Minister of Immigration. He is also a candidate for re-election for the Liberal Party. He's also uh, taking a lead role for the government in trying to get 20,000 vulnerable Afghans to Canada, Afghan women, human rights workers, and those who supported Canada's military efforts in the country and now fear they'll be targeted by the Taliban regime. Minister Mendicino is with me now. Uh, first of all, thanks for taking time to speak with me tonight. Uh, we have some developments this evening. What can you tell us about the latest efforts, uh, Canada's latest efforts to get Afghans out of that country. What do we know? Well, uh, first, thank you for having me. And I do indeed have some important news to share with you and your viewers. And that is that the latest flight, another flight of Afghan refugees has just landed in Canada. And this to the multitude of flights that have already uh, come to Canada with Afghan refugees in keeping with our commitment to get those Afghans who supported the Canadian mission uh, for years out as quickly and as safely as possible. Um, this is also an important date because it's the first day in which the Afghan refugees who have already arrived will be completing their quarantine and starting uh, the next phase of their lives here in Canada. This is all part of phase one of our operation, but I also want to really take a moment to underline that the next phase of this operation will be to respond to the impending humanitarian crisis which is unfolding. And that will be to resettle the 20,000, up to 20,000 Afghan refugees focusing on women, girls, and other targeted minorities who are in third countries. And that is work that we are going to do uh, in conjunction with partners and with civil society. And we're going to work around the clock to do that as much as possible. All right, we've, the, the, there's, there was a couple of planes yesterday as well, I think, but uh, the, the one that landed in Toronto this evening, what can you tell me about the people on that plane? Past flights have been a mix of, uh, in some cases, Canadians, uh, you know, diplomats, uh, former embassy workers and so on, and uh, I think some Afghan. So, tell me about the makeup of, of the people on that plane that landed tonight, what do you know? Well, we have to be careful because of operational security, but here's what I can tell you in terms of the numbers thus far, uh, we have evacuated over 800 Afghan refugees, uh, 500 of whom have already safely arrived in Canada. That's uh, not including the additional uh, two flights which arrived yesterday and today. So those numbers uh, continue to go up in partnership with our coalition forces. We are going to do everything that we can. We will move heaven and earth to continue to evacuate as many Afghan uh, refugees who are the locally engaged staff the interpreters and their families directly out of Kabul. But I also want to, again, come back to the point that the broader humanitarian program focusing on women, girls, and human rights activists will be an important pathway to protection for those who are outside of Afghanistan and who have already had to flee because, of course, of the Taliban. Right. So that is work which we are also engaged with. Let me ask you about uh, reports uh, as we speak uh, suggesting there there uh, is a little less chaos at the airport in uh, Kabul and that some planes are, are getting in and out. Uh, Canada does have military aircraft on standby in Kuwait. W when will they be dispatched to, to Kabul to airlift more evacuees? What's the plan there? Well, we hope as soon as possible, but we have to make sure that the situation on the ground is secure. And as I have said, uh, we're working 24-7 uh, with our coalition uh, partners, uh, particularly the United States and the Brits. Uh, in fact, just earlier today, Peter, uh, I had a call with my 5i counterparts, where, among other things, uh, we agreed to work together very closely to uh, evacuate directly out of Afghanistan as many Afghans as possible, but equally uh, to be collaborative with, with regards 
uh, to um, the, the broader humanitarian resettlement effort that will be undertaken in third countries. Because as you know, um, there are already reports of thousands of Afghans who have already left Afghanistan because they're worried for their lives. They don't have a long-term solution. And with this pathway, Canada can provide one. And this is in keeping with our leadership in the humanitarian resettlement space. The Prime Minister said today Canada will not recognize the uh, Taliban as the government of Afghanistan, saying they're a recognized terrorist organization under Canadian law. Um, and I'm wondering if making that declaration now uh, could complicate efforts to get Afghans out of the country and, and to Canada, uh, given uh, the concerns and preoccupation with the possibilities of uh, retribution uh, by the Taliban regime? Well, I think it's important that we are unequivocally clear about what our expectations are with regards to the Taliban, and that is that they allow safe passage for every person who is attempting to leave uh, Afghanistan, particularly those who have been approved under our special immigration measures, the interpreters, uh, the uh, locally engaged staff, uh, the uh, families of those, as well as those who are uh, simply seeking a better life and who are seeking refuge. So I think by um, absolutely stating that unequivocally, what we are expressing, and this is also something that um, I spoke about with our Five Eyes partners, is that we need to speak with one voice. The world will be watching, and it is important that they that everyone who's attempting to leave Afghanistan be allowed to do so safely. And let me follow up on that because we're hearing uh, reports of hundreds of Afghan translators, drivers, fixers, as they're as they're known, people who uh, assisted Canadians in many different ways uh, while Canadians were uh, fighting the war in Afghanistan. Uh, that they're hiding out in, in Kabul and facing the challenge of trying to get to the airport because of all these Taliban checkpoints. What have you been told about? Um, the numbers of people that Canada wants to help that actually can't get to the airport. And uh, do you have some idea of how you're going to deal with that? Well, we're very aware of those reports. Uh, I see them as you do. And obviously they're, they're very disconcerting, which is why, as I said, we are um, sparing no effort and using all of our energy uh, to reestablish those flights coming out of Kabul. As I pointed out, there was another flight that just landed today. Um, I also had a conversation with uh, representatives of uh, some of the veterans advocates groups who have been, I think, performing a, an important service by providing us with information and intelligence on the ground. Th this needs to be a whole of government effort. This needs to be a whole of society effort. Um, we want to try and get a safe passage to those who've been approved under our programs to the airport. Uh, we are insisting uh, that we cut through the red tape, making the processes uh, as clear, as as efficient as possible. Um, I, I think it's just imperative that everybody understand that we are doing everything in our power to evacuate as many Afghans as possible. But we also need to uh, turn our minds to the humanitarian resettlement effort that will be a part of the broader 20,000 that we hope to welcome. And that is something that we are moving forward with as well. Right. Uh, that'll come. There, there's a uh, as you know, uh, clearly a sense of urgency around what's taking place there now with the people that uh, Canada's trying to get out. Uh, you touched on it here, and I want to hear more from you on it. Uh, some Afghans uh, um, that Canada's trying to get out of the country complain they're being told by the government to get a passport, for instance, before an application to get out of the country can be processed. Few Afghans uh, have passports, and they aren't going to get one now. Uh, tell me more about what you've instructed bureaucrats in the government to do about waiving some of those demands for documentation? Uh, to cut through the red tape as much as we possibly can without compromising security. 
And I want to be also very clear with your viewers that the obstacles that were put up were put up by the former Afghan government and currently the Taliban. And our position to them is do not impede those who are eligible under our programs to get safe passage to the airports so that we can evacuate them. I think that uh, we need to continue to uh, make sure that everybody uh, is aware of the fact that we are trying to uh, make sure this process as quick and as efficient and as safe as possible. And our uh, armed forces members and indeed all officials who are working on the ground uh, in Kabul and as well as in uh, the surrounding region are performing um, exceptionally well under exceedingly difficult circumstances. The situation there has deteriorated far faster than anyone calculated or, or, or could appreciate. But notwithstanding those challenges, we are continuing to get flights out and obviously today's landing is, is another proof of that. Let me ask you, who, who's doing that work? I think the prime minister said today that all Canadian diplomats are now out of Afghanistan. So who's on the ground working to locate, process, approve uh, and shepherd uh, Afghans out, out of that country that are destined for Canada? Well, right now we have evacuated our uh, embassy because the situation was uh, not stable and not secure. And so following the advice of our ambassador there, uh, we had to withdraw. But we are still able to process uh, the people who are coming through our system. My officials and uh, global affairs officials are uh, working to support that. They're doing that work remotely in a secure location. Uh, but in addition to that, it is the members of our Canadian Armed Forces who are uh, going uh, in and out with our uh, air carriers, the uh, CC-17s uh, and the Hercules that are able to transport Afghans uh, as well as you know, other other individuals who qualify under our programs. And that work is going around the clock. And we will not stop until the last possible moment. And when an evacuation operation is no longer possible because the coalition will have completely withdrawn, we will then put all of our energy into resettling those Afghans who are in third countries who need a home. And they will be able to find one here in Canada okay. through our project to uh, welcome 20,000 Afghan refugees. Just in a, a little bit of time we have left, finish on this. Uh, Taliban leaders promised today, look, there'll, there'll be no retribution against former soldiers and supporters of, of the Western-backed government. Uh, they promised to respect women's rights, but within Sharia law. Um, how is your government treating those pronouncements from the Taliban leaders? Well, our view is, is that actions will speak louder than words. Um, we know the record of the Taliban. Uh, we're hearing the same uh, um, statements that you're hearing. Uh, but we've got to be unequivocally clear that our expectation is, is that those Afghans who are eligible under our programs, who are trying to get to the airport, are allowed to do so safely. And we will continue to work with our coalition partners to ensure that is the case so that we can save as many lives as possible. And this is another uh, instance where I, I believe Canadians will step up. I mean, the conversations that I'm having in, on the ground in the communities, particularly the Afghan Canadian community here that is prepared to rise up and welcome Afghans as we did in Syria, as we did in Vietnam, as we've done time and time again, allows us with another opportunity to show leadership. All right. Immigration Minister Marco Mendicino, uh, thanks for your time tonight, Minister. Good to talk to you. Take care. Thank you, Peter. I think Canadians expect their political parties and indeed their government to keep them safe and protected. And the best way to keep everyone safe and protected, the best way to get through this pandemic 
is for everyone to get fully vaccinated. That's why every time I'm at a microphone uh, during this campaign and beyond, I will continue to tell people to go get vaccinated if you haven't already. It is the way we get through this. And quite frankly, all political leaders should be exactly as unequivocal about it. Well, I'll repeat again because it's so important. Vaccines are critical. Canada's Conservatives have been pushing for faster access. They're safe and effective. Rebecca and I videotaped our uh, getting the vaccine and we had COVID. So we know what fears there are with families because of the fourth wave. Mr. Trudeau needs to come clean with whether the plan that was on the website before he covered it up is actually their plan. We need to use vaccines. They're critical. But in some cases where we can use daily rapid testing, masking and all other measures, we need to, to bring people together, not divide. We need to get people vaccinated, but also have a plan in cases where they're not. All right, now let's return to the increasingly uh, politicized election debate over mandatory vaccinations. The Prime Minister saying today that any federal public servants who refuse to be vaccinated will face undefined consequences. Uh, we saw today at another campaign stop in Aurora, Ontario, the Prime Minister confronting, uh, being confronted by anti-vaccination protesters there, some pushing and shoving taking place. What effect could the highly charged political debate on vaccination have on efforts to protect Canadians and curb the fourth wave of COVID-19? Ray Watt Dionandon is an epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa, has joined us regularly over the course of the pandemic. Uh, he's with us again. Uh, Mr. Dionandon, uh, thanks for joining me again today. What do you think of the way the debate over vaccine is unfolding in the election campaign, the kinds of confrontations we're now starting to see at some campaign stops? Well, the pandemic has a way of exacerbating existing divides in society. These divides are socioeconomic, they're racial, they're age-based, and they're ideological. So it's not surprising that even something as you would think innocuous as vaccination seems to fall along ideological lines. And it's being... It's being situated as a values issue, which to my mind is unfortunate, right? So it's being situated as something to do with the individual autonomy of our bodies to not be uh, forced to accept an external thing like a vaccine. What I'd prefer is that if we talked about the larger public good that's also at risk here. So we have a precedent in society of not allowing or of allowing the state to interfere in my bodily integrity. For example, the state tells me I can't inject heroin into my veins right. and I can't sell my organs. So this is just an extension of the extent to which government can dictate what I do with my body if it's in the public good. Now, it's odd that we're not having this larger discussion about the values at play here. Are the values here about individual autonomy? Are they about the public good? Mm. So to the extent that that exists, that's happening, it's understandable that it's being forced into the, uh, the election milieu as an ideological divide. Right. So, I mean, how, how do you get around that? I mean, if you, if it's, it's being talked about as a, as a values, not a, a, a public health issue. I mean, what's a way to approach this where you think there can be a, um, an informed civil discussion around vaccination without seeing the kinds of images we're seeing on a campaign trail? Well, what's missing is the larger goal here. I think we all agree that we want to get through the pandemic. So what are what are the truths on the ground? The truths on the ground are we have this hypertransmissible Delta variant. We have insufficient vaccine uptake. We have mitigation strategies like mask wearing and distancing that have been largely 
effective but insufficient to stop the pandemic locally. That leaves the greatest tool available to us, which is vaccination. Mm. So it hasn't been couched in those discussion terms yet, is what do we all have in common here? What we all have in common is a desire to get out of this mess. And to that extent, vaccinations are our best, our best tool. So what remains is the extent to which we want to deploy vaccination and at what scale. And I don't think the, the citizenry has understood it in those terms yet. Mm. This is our best way out. Right. So what they are hearing in a campaign is, you know, the prime minister making it clear today that if his party's uh, reelected, any public servants who refuse to get vaccinated will face consequences, although he didn't specify exactly what the consequences might be. Is that an effective approach? Well, not really. Um, here's why. Uh, it's unclear what those consequences are, as you point out. The consequences probably are you got to take a few extra tests, which doesn't strike me as being distinct from the other side's policies, which are kind of like the same. I'm not going to force vaccination on you. If you don't want it, take a few tests every week. We can't sustain that way of living. Uh, the testing milieu is not an effective strategy for a large number of people to get through this anytime soon. So I think the party that gets through this uh, victoriously is the one that shows true leadership and saying the higher good is public health, mm. and public health gets us through this mess faster. Yeah. The majority is behind that messaging. The majority wants vaccination. Yeah, the prime minister seemed to be suggesting today that uh, that idea, uh, you know, was was uh, of you know, more rapid testing for public servants who refuse vaccines says that that was a mistake being floated by public servants. That's not going to be the case. There will be real consequences, saying without identifying that. And I, I wonder if that if that kind of approach, uh, you know, has has as an effect entrenching uh, people who see it as an attack on their on their basic rights. I think it's unavoidable. That's going to be the case. But that number of people is going to be small and probably weren't supporters of the prime minister's platform to begin with. So I think you have to cater here to the majority of voters. And the majority of voters want to get through this pandemic faster, and they are accepting of vaccine science. Uh, what what questions do you think should be asked as this debate goes on? I mean, I, I, uh, we're seeing it as we've talked about being politicized in the campaign. But, uh, you know, what's missing from the conversation? You've touched on where it needs to go, but how do you get at that? What's missing is... In absence of vaccination, what are people willing to do for the common good? How much are we willing to sacrifice individually? And really, this ultimately is a discussion of Canadian values. We haven't had this examination in some time. Um, uh, it, it may open up a door to other kinds of discussions like, is it okay now to sell blood? Is it okay now to put a, a price on human tissue? To what extent is bodily integrity now part of the value system of Canadians? I don't know. But it's an exciting time in a strange way. So to answer your question directly, what is missing from this mm -hmm. conversation? The limits of public tolerance and how much are we willing to sacrifice to get through this faster? No one's asked that question directly yet. What do you see, given um, uh, the, a lot of the evidence, uh, the predominant evidence about the effectiveness of, of vaccinations, and we're seeing that in case counts in hospitals, you're seeing the, the, the new cases tend to be largely people who have been unvaccinated or maybe who had one vaccine or still uh, people who have been vaccinated getting COVID as well, but their their outcomes typically, uh, right, are better. Uh, what's at the heart of the opposition uh, to vaccination that we're seeing in some cases uh, demonstrated so fiercely here? 
Well, the the vaccine-resistant are a diverse crowd. I think it's a mistake to paint them with one color. They're the hardcore anti-vaxxers for whom this is a kind of religion. They're the vaccine-hesitant who just need a little more care and education because they need to be handheld through this minefield of misinformation. They're the apathetic for whom vaccination is not a bad thing. It's just not a great incentive yet for them to take that step. Then there are those who want to get vaccinated but they hadn't, uh, the policy options aren't there yet. For example, they need time off work, they need childcare, et cetera. That last group, the policy options are low-hanging fruit. Bring the vaccines to their door, offer them childcare, give them paid time off. For the apathetic, the vaccine passports are an incentive. And for the vaccine hesitant, we need to talk them through with education and handholding. For the hardcore anti-vaxxers, it's a little harder. Right? So it's unclear exactly what's driving them, except for a deeply seated ideological belief in anti-science. How useful is it, to, since we're in the midst of an election campaign, how useful do you think it is to have politicians leading the conversation over what's right, especially, as I say, in an election campaign? I think it's problematic because once um, a given person speaks a certain position, their ideological stripes taint the conversation. Mm -hmm. If the prime minister says something, then his detractors will see will see it as the opposite as being true. If uh, Mr. O'Toole says something, his detractors will see the opposite as being true. I don't know any way around this. Mm -hmm. I kind of wish it was not a politicized topic. I wish this was strictly a public health topic that did not have the scent of ideology attached to it. But those days are past. It's been that way since the American federal election, frankly, and there's no way out of it. Let's finish on this. How, how uh, damaging do you think um, this kind of a debate taking place in a, in a political campaign, how damaging could it be to efforts to curb the fourth wave and I suppose any successive waves of COVID? You know, I, I'm a stupid optimist. I think we may end up with some advantages here because both sides, or more than two sides, but two sides in general, are discussing vaccination and both are inching towards more vaccination. Both are on side with encouraging uptake. The distinction is how best to encourage uptake. So no one is saying less vaccination. Right. Everyone's saying more vaccination. It's just how this is done. So I like to think it's a good sign. All right. Uh, Raywat Dionandan, always uh, great to get your perspective. Thanks again for it this evening. Thank you. That's all the time we have for this edition of uh, Primetime Politics, the Vote 2021 edition. Make sure to tune in again tomorrow as we cover all of the day's campaign events. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching. Take care.